Ever met a man who was born in a log cabin? No, it's not Abe Lincoln. We're talking about Isaac Fox. And from Lord of the Rings to the love of God, Isaac is about to tell his story on Spirit Inspire, starting right now. Broadcasting from the Cathedral of the Assumption in Louisville, Kentucky, this is Spirit Inspire. And now, here's your host, Hello everyone, welcome back to another exciting episode of Spirit and Spire. Today I'm your host, John Soule. With me is my co-host, Isaac Fox. Hey there. And uh, we are very excited today. Uh, Brian and Eric weren't able to be with us today, but they'll be back in future episodes. Um, God willing, of course, we're all in this uh, journey one step at a time. And uh, speaking of journeys, Isaac has been on quite a journey himself. He's got a great story to share. Uh, Brian and Eric and I have gotten a chance to share our story. And um, we're... uh, very privileged to have Isaac share his story with us today. So are you excited, Isaac? Absolutely. And I would like to clarify that yeah. that's what we're excited about, not excited about the fact that Eric and uh, Brian are sick. Oh, right, yeah. right. Of course, of course. That's that's true. We are so excited you guys are sick today. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. No. But uh, I'm, I'm, I've known you for a little over a year yeah. now. And I have just been fascinated by uh, just the whole way God brought us together. Yeah. And I think that is part of this story, whether we get to that today or not is not as important because you have uh, a lot that's happened in your life uh, that has been both joyful and perhaps some suffering, you know, like all of us. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know, I, I guess like any of us, maybe take us back to maybe early days. What was sure. your childhood like? Things yeah. like that, what was going on at those times? Let me do like super quick bio sketch. Yeah, do it. Uh, yeah, family Bird's background. Eye view is good, and then because we'll... that I, I think like the family background does definitely inform my story, which I guess it does with almost everybody's. Sure. Um, I'm a convert, as you know. So both of my parents came from the Church of Christ background, uh, a Protestant denomination. Um, my dad came, possibly both of them, but my dad, I know for sure, came from the very conservative branch, the Church of Christ, where it's very, it's very fundamentalist, um, where things like you couldn't even have a musical instrument in your church, right? Not a piano, nothing like that, right? So very strict, very strict. Um, my grandparents on my dad's side were missionaries for the Church of Christ in Japan pre and during World War II. Uh, my dad was actually born in Japan in 1932. And his family escaped just bef- and got back to the States shortly before the bombing of Pearl Harbor. So quite a, quite a bit of an interesting story there as well. Yeah. Um, I was the youngest of my dad's second marriage. So I have just one full brother who's four years older than me. And my dad, who, he's deceased now, coming up on, uh, I guess, about 10 years at this point. But he was a Church of Christ pastor for a number of years. Um, so that's kind of the family background. But then... Um, around the time that I was born, my parents had left the Church of Christ. They kind of set off and to do their own thing. We'll talk about that, I'm sure, in a moment. Sure. And um, for most of most of his life, my dad had been a professional artist, so he was no longer preaching when I was growing up. So I remember him as being an artist. Um, so he was an artist. Yes. So what did he do as an artist? A couple of things. If you go back a bit to when he lived in Louisville. 
he had a screen printing business called Fox Design and Display, and he did a lot of professional work, um, posters, things like that for businesses, and it was actually fairly successful. He sold it, and uh, he and my mom ended up just kind of, I think, wanting to get away from everything. They kind of moved out of society and never looked back. So those more successful days were before I was born. So he kind of grew up dirt poor. He was, he was an artist, uh, commission work, occasionally would paint a portrait of somebody, or he would on his own like to do landscapes. And, you know, we'd sell a few paintings a year and a few prints. And yeah, when I was, I'd say between the ages of six and 10, we probably made about $5,000 a year for a family of four. And that so hasn't been that long. You were, ago. in many ways, the definition of a starving artist. Yes, I've said I've said that before that we put we put new meaning to the term starving artist. <laughs> but so my parents kind of so they sort of left society. Um, they purchased an old log cabin in uh, right near Madison, Indiana, and I was actually born in that log cabin in the middle of twenty acres of woods. So. Definitely a far from civilization kind of beginning there. And you're pretty tall, which kind of yes. There the, go the, there go the is, Abe Lincoln jokes. Yeah, right. I was waiting for you. I, I figured I'd let you say the obvious. There's Abe Lincoln for you. Yeah, it's okay. I have a top hat, so I want to dress up as Abe Lincoln. And which and you're that you're and also stuff. fairly you're taller than me. I I'm not really. I think so. You're what six two? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. You're you, you're you're taller really? than me. Really? Well, well. It's still. You were born in a log cabin, though. You have that up on And I do know how to split wood. Oh, that's so cool. That's so cool. You might have to do some lessons or something. (laughs) That'd be fun. So anyway, um, so from there with with childhood uh, in a log cabin, I mean, how long were you there? We weren't there for long. Um, we, We actually moved when I was about two. The people that bought the cabin... Uh, became acquainted with my parents, so we would go back over the course of the next number of years and and visit them. And it was kind of special, actually. Um, before the husband of that couple passed away a few years ago, I was able to take my family, and we reconnected and got to see the cabin again, which I hadn't seen in like you know twenty five years or something like that. Wow! So they'd added on to it a bit, but a lot of it was still the same and. Yeah, it was, so it was cool. pretty cool. Sat on the same same front porch. And... I hope you got pictures of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it was a very, very special moment. But we moved when I was about two. And we moved to Salem, Indiana. Little little small country town still. So I, I kind of did all my growing up in, in small country, southern Indiana. Um, and that was where we stayed, was in the Salem area, pretty much until I moved out and got my first apartment. Um, theologically, and I think this is important, when I, when I say that my parents left the Church of Christ, my, my dad had a, a sort of developed a theological viewpoint in which he was very opposed to organized religion. I think there's a couple of factors behind that, maybe even some psychological factors, to be honest about it, I'm not sure. Uh, but that doesn't mean that he was opposed to Christianity. He just didn't think Christianity should be an organized religion. So he was actually a very religious person, very religious. Um, so he, you, he wasn't someone who just says, I'm spiritual, but not exactly, religious. Exactly, exactly, right. Because you hear that when people, uh, frequently, I think, when people say, you know, they don't like organized religion or, or whatever, that that's kind of the direction they're going in. Um, my dad was very Christian, very strong in his faith. Um, he was a very strong personality in general. 
but he did not like the structure of which in which most churches were created. And so when I in my growing up, the idea of church was fundamentally that of a Bible study. So it might be like a group of people would meet in somebody's home. And, and my dad's idea was that this was primitive Christianity. This is how the apostles would have done it. You know, because you have some lines in the scripture about oh, meeting at somebody's home. Right. He didn't think you should have officially appointed pastors or deacons or elders or any of that kind of stuff, right? So it was... Not, I mean, he may have missed a few other verses. Possibly, there, right? possibly, <laughs> or, or maybe misunderstood some of them. Sure. Um, and this actually brings up... I think kind of an interesting point when it comes down to understanding Christian history, because my dad had loads of religious material, and he had a lot of different Bibles, and he had like Greek lexicons and so forth. So he, and he, he didn't speak Greek or know Greek, but he would go and look up words, just like using a dictionary, and then build something off of the definition that he'd found out about what one of these words meant. And that's dangerous in a sense, because even if we look something up in an English dictionary, we might find three or four different definitions for a word. And it may not always be clear from just a definition how something is being used in a particular historical context. Right, because you're dealing with language, culture, religion, yeah. uh, different kinds of prejudices that we couldn't even necessarily fully understand. I mean, there's right. so much that... How do you put yourself in someone else's shoes from 2,000 years ago? 5, exactly. Years you ago. have to do some level of historical research. Yes. And so I, one of the ones that kind of sticks in my mind that's jumping out right now is the word, which is often translated as bishop or episcopate in, um, in Catholic Bibles. And, and often I think was even like King James Bibles. You know, my dad would say this just means overseer. And... He would take that idea and maybe like the, the concept of shepherd or something. And therefore, it was no longer this official idea of like a bishop in the Catholic Church with robes and the mitre and all of that. Right. But it's simply somebody who was maybe a bit older and wiser who kind of kept an eye on things, right? It's this very mild sort of version. Huh. And the reality is that an overseer, that's just the definition of a word. That can mean anything. I mean, you could have a harsh overseer who's overseeing labor in a mine and cracking a whip. Right? Yes. Or you could have this sort of mild, gentle version that was my dad's idea, or it could quite literally at that time have meant precisely the Episcopal notion that the Catholic Church has. Yeah. So I think there is a certain historical uh, and linguistic danger in just using the dictionary to try to figure out your theology. True. Yeah, yeah. because there's this uh, tendency that you could reduce it to just a management position. Right. You know, or uh, like the corporate people coming in to tell you how to do things, but when they leave, you just do your own thing, right. which doesn't give order. Uh, it doesn't create a whole lot of uh, unity. And right. while we still have problems in the church today, there's something to be said about that laying on of hands over centuries of time that gives us that apostolic succession, the magisterium, the hierarchy, without losing the charismatic ability to move with the winds of the Holy Spirit right. when things do get out of right. order, when there is hypocrisy, contradiction, or abuse, right? And um, you kind of, you laid your finger on something important there, the, the winds of the Holy Spirit. This was something that I think was definitely a process for me. Because the idea, not just of my family, but also a few other families that, that they were close to over the years, um, was the idea that church should simply be a group of believers meeting together in somebody's home, 
to study the Bible and pray. Maybe sing some hymns along the way. And the idea was that in doing that, you would be open to the Holy Spirit's leading. And so there was this very strong sort of prejudice um, that the Spirit had to work in this, how would I say this, this sort of, these no parameters, right? This sort of aspect of freedom. You kind of like sit there and you feel what the Spirit might be saying and you go with it. Whereas at a structured liturgy, though, such as we have in the Catholic Church, that wouldn't maybe seem right. likely. In other words, you need, the, uh, the idea was that you would need the ability for things to be suddenly changed and interrupted as the Spirit would direct. And it took me, it took me a very long time to begin to learn and realize that the Spirit might actually work in a structure as that well, doesn't right? preclude the possibility of the, of the Spirit's working. Right, think of the human body, you know, the body of Christ as we are, the mystical yeah. body of Christ. A, a human body has so many facets to it, right? We have the nerves, we have the skin, we have blood, we have muscles, we have uh, a skeletal structure, right? Yes. Skeleton. So think of the skeleton in terms of hierarchy, the structure, right. right? The bare bones of the church and what it contains. But then you have to let the Holy Spirit work within that. So this is where you breathe life into the church. Right. It's not an archaic institution of rules and regulations like so many people think. It's it's this living, breathing, beautiful uh, entity of uh, Christ on earth. Like we are the body of Christ. So we, we give the presence of Christ in a way where the charismatic, that contemporary... Uh, not to be confused with modernism that right. gets overly secular, a little bit ambiguous and wishy-washy, mm -hmm. but we're talking about that contemporary charisma that gives you energy, gives you hope, actually leads somewhere, bears yes. fruit without compromising the truth or, uh, or rejects the structure and order that the Holy Spirit wants us to cling right. to because a human body without a skeleton is just big, a big pile of mush. You can't get up, you can't yeah. move, you can't do anything, right? That's such a great point. And like St. Paul is so clear that the church is the body of Christ. So I'm really glad you used that analogy because when we think of structure, uh, when we think of the liturgy, we think of something more formal, it, that can sound more like a business. Right. But the reality is it's a body. And yes, the body is a living thing, as you point out, but it has to have its structure. Yes. Any yes. change to the structure of the body besides organic growth is very problematic. Yes. It's not like, eh, I think I'm going to take my head and put it over here. You, you will die. You will die. die. <laughs> you right. can't do that. Now, on the other hand, you can't. You can get healthier, but you have to keep the same structure. Right, exactly. You have to keep the same structure. Um, like a general outline of mm -hmm. where we're heading, what we do, and how we work. But then within that, if you didn't have any spirit, or there would be no life. It would exactly. just be a big pile of bones. And that's right. what I think a lot of people mistakenly think the church is. Right. And it sounds like, on some level, like maybe your father thought a little bit about that as well. Yeah, I think so. And I would say as far as my childhood goes, so eventually we did have some times where we met with other people. But a lot of times even that didn't happen. So a large amount of my childhood was simply Sunday morning Bible study at home, just the four of us. And I think that my, I think my dad never quite got over being, having been a preacher because what that really meant was um, a very long time just sitting listening to him preach. 
right as a family <laughs> which was not the most fun for my brother and I you know and we'd have to dress up even at home you'd have to wear your Sunday clothes and we'd Whoa. sit on we'd sit on the couch like this and I, it felt like two hours to me it was probably an hour but you know it's like That's how many times I look at this seam in the couch or you know whatever <laughs> but not to sound negative there's right. a there was a huge a huge positive in that was the fact that I did get a pretty solid familiarity with the Bible, which unfortunately doesn't always happen with Catholics. And, you know, so that was good. We did a lot of Bible study. Um, maybe not that I would agree with all the interpretation of it now, but there was a familiarity with it. Uh, eventually, we ended up meeting at my uncle's house, and I did kind of witness where the lack of structure and lack of leadership can be a problem because sometimes people wouldn't agree. And so, you know, instead of this, this is the truth, the church has proclaimed this definition on this particular theological topic, there, there could be a fair amount of sitting around for an hour or so and people talking and putting out ideas and not agreeing with each other. And that can lead to a lot of uh, frustration and turmoil, perhaps, with even families. Yeah, yeah, everybody was pretty close in that group. There wasn't a lot of that, per se. Well, that's good. But, but I think that it was something that was very attractive to me when I finally came in contact with the idea of the, of the Catholic Church was, you know, feeling that there had been a, a fair amount of time spent trying to decide on, on certain maybe doctrines or maybe interpretations of passages. And I think it's quite possible that we as humans could go on doing that infinitely and never come to a conclusion. Well, I think that's what some people misunderstand about words like catechesis mm -hmm. you know, or evangelization even. It's not instructing the ignorant. It's deepening our relationship with Christ. Right. And if we understand that, then there's you'll never know everything about Jesus or his church or his teachings or the lifestyle that he calls us to. Right. That's an eternal journey because we're made for eternal happiness. So I think it's powerful that you fell in love with the Catholic Church um, because on some level, because of all the study of the, the overview of Scripture, whether you had correct interpretations or not, gave you on some level an advantage over many Catholics yeah. because we just kind of say, oh, they read it to us every Sunday. We don't have to crack it open ourselves. And so there isn't as big of a familiarity as there should be in the Catholic Church of the story of Scripture. Agreed. And that's and powerful. I'm, I'm grateful to that. Like, even though I left being Protestant, I'm, I have to be extremely grateful to that, uh, for that to this day. I was... You know, I've, I've thought about this for many years, and there's a couple of things that, that stick out to me. If I were to try to, because anybody's story could take a long time to tell. Oh, so yeah. if I were to try to kind of encapsulate the religious and, and sort of intellectual atmosphere in which I was raised, that I think, was, I think is very important to this, there would be two or three points one is the fact that idea of church name, church structure, church authority, all of that, that was, that gets thrown out the window, right? So while we were in some ways sort of what people might call fundamentalist, right? You know, uh, very much the, the Bible believing, nothing else, you know, solo scripture and all that. Um, we, were, we were completely non-denominational and non-structured, 
Right, so that was very important. There is a line from G.K. Chesterton where he speaks of the, the Protestant idea of private interpretation of Scripture. And the Protestant will feel a great opposition to the idea that the Pope may be infallible, right? That seems wrong, maybe blasphemous to them that any man can be given that infallibility. And of course, what we're actually saying is that the Holy Spirit protects him from making a mistake. But Chesterton was pointing out in one of his books, and I forget where it is, but he was pointing out that in reality, the Protestant with the idea of private interpretation is also feeling that what they believe is infallible and that they got that from the Holy Spirit directly. Right. Except that so often one will disagree with another and the next will disagree with his neighbor and the church down the road and so forth. And Chesterton, of course, always has these incredibly witty comments, but he said something to the effect of, it's substituting one infallible pope in Rome for 3,000 infallible popes next door, or something along those wow. lines, right? It's, great. it's a great line. <clears throat> that is good. And so this is one of the big things that really sticks with me from my childhood. And I, I want to say this in a very careful way, because I don't want this to sound negative at all. I had, and to this day have, dearly beloved Protestant friends who are beautiful Christians, and there's a lot that I'm grateful for uh, to my family for how I was raised. But I mentioned earlier that my, my dad was a very strong personality, very kind of dominant character, and that he had been a minister for a number of years. And so while I think Chesterton is somewhat right about that, that point of private interpretation, in our house, though, there weren't even four popes. There was definitely only one. And so... Yeah. It cannot be questioned that my childhood, the religious atmosphere, was heavily influenced or characterized by what my dad believed that he had learned or been shown perhaps by God. And you couldn't really argue with that, right? Because it's partly because my dad took being the father very seriously. Uh, the fact that he was an older man, there was a generation gap certainly between us, and so he... You know, How old was your dad when you were born? He was almost 50 when I was born. Wow. Right. And so, and then that coupled with this, the idea that things that he believed, um, many of them were because he felt convinced that God had showed it to him, or he had this interior sense, which he believed was the Holy Spirit. Um yeah, that did really kind of put my dad in the position of Pope in the family. There, there wasn't much disagreement about anything theological. So psychologically, and I think at that point religiously, my dad looms very large in this picture, very, very large. Um, and the third and final point I would make, and I think all this is important as to how that relates to the shocking discovery that was the Catholic Church to me, the third and final point I would make that is very interesting. My family and many of the, the well, not that there was a lot, but many of the few people that we would meet with were universalists. They believed that everybody would be saved in the end, that hell was not everlasting. And I find this interesting. I found it interesting many years ago, really. My dad could be a... You know, he could be very strict. He was very passionate in his preaching. He had no problems laying down the law to anybody he met, right? You know, 
So he was one of the 3,000 popes around, I guess. And, <laughs> and I, so I find that kind of interesting because when it came down to the question of, of everlasting hell, he believed that a God of love, a God of mercy, would never have even allowed the possibility of somebody to go to hell forever. And so he would say that what he preached was about the love and mercy of God. And if people from other maybe Protestant denominations disagreed with that, you know, his emphasis was that he was preaching love and mercy. And so I, I, I kind of find a certain irony there that I don't think I've ever known anybody who didn't believe in hell, or at least not everlasting hell, and preach love and mercy so hard that could be so strict <laughs> at the same time. Right. And so like you know, dogmatic about everything he believed and, and how, and that could cause divisions between him and other people. Where maybe he struggled to show the love and mercy himself. Yeah. We, we didn't have a lot of friends growing up. Um, and, and that was a, a heavy part of it, was that. So those were a few things that I was heavily steeped in as a child. Uh, the viewpoint that the church should be completely unstructured uh, there was little to no emphasis on intellectual uh, pursuits in Christianity. It was what you felt the Holy Spirit was telling you or leading you to do. Um, there was strongly this idea of private interpretation, but that kind of meant my dad's. And then and so, finally, so there was this idea of universalism. Those would be the three big things. Okay, so how old were you when all these things were going on? My entire childhood. This was from day one. So age zero to... 15, 16, 17, when yeah. you started to yeah. question, I guess? or Yes, that would be a right about the age when, when questions began popping up in my mind. Okay. Well, that, to me, sounds like a good spot to pause. It does. Because uh, that's a, that's quite an, a journey because that, that deals with conversion and this desire for redemption and all of that. So I think we'll uh, pause for that segment right now. We'll uh, get back more with Isaac after the break, everybody. We'll see you soon. Hello everyone! The Marion Center is one of Louisville's true hidden treasures. Located at 165 Sears Avenue in St. Matthews, the Marion Center is a Catholic bookstore and gift shop. It also contains a lending library, a large selection of used books and free materials, and a beautiful Blessed Sacrament Chapel. For more information, call the Marion Center at 502-899-5125. God bless. All right, everybody, welcome back to Spirit Inspire. We're here with Isaac Fox, our wonderful co-host who is sharing his story, his journey of conversion, uh, redemption, and uh, his continued journey, I'd say, because we're all on that. And so we're very excited to have him here to share that. Um, it's been a great journey so far with this podcast and, and uh, sharing all of what we have been given by God to share for such a time as this, right? Yeah. Here at the Cathedral of the Assumption, I think that's also an incredible uh, reality that we're here to, at the spiritual center of the archdiocese to have the privilege to share our stories and uh, to share the story of the church on some level. But um, one thing that you said in the last segment, I, th I think it's really powerful, Isaac, uh, spoke to me, you know, with G.K. Chesterton speaking about, you know, <laughs> the, the quip of why trade one pope 3,000 miles away for 3,000 popes one yeah. mile away. That reminds me of a, a quote from the movie The Patriot, mm -hmm. you know, with Mel Gibson. Great movie. Um, 
And he had said that in relation to King George III. Why should I tra trade one dictator 3,000 miles away for 3,000 dictators I one forgot mile that away? line is in there. Yeah, yeah, he said that. And I always <laughs> thought that was powerful, you know, because you think of America and the story of our country even. You know, it was always a, about rebellion, revolting right. against a dictator who was unjust and overly aggressive, right? right. And sadly, I think that is a tendency that we all have, not just in America, but it's it's a, almost like the spirit of the world, mm -hmm. believing that anyone in authority over another eventually will devolve into a dictatorial role. Right. And that sadly gets pushed onto, projected onto God the Father as yes. well, including yes. his son and the vicar of his son, yes. which is the Pope. And so that yeah. dictatorship is, I think, what I felt when you said that. And I wonder how much you experienced that with the Pope in your own home as you grew up, but also mm. in your own learnings of other Protestant beliefs and denominations of rejecting the Pope, but having something of a dictatorship of their own thoughts in other ways, right? Which if it's right at home, can be perhaps even more um, impacting. Yeah. I think that's a great question, John. And just real quickly, what you were saying about America, you know, it wasn't long before we had to solidify our government here as well, because maybe right. you're rejecting a dictator legitimately, but you don't you can't just have a total free-for-all after that, right? Right. Um, but I think that you, you said the spirit of the world, and I think that's very true. I think it is non servum, I will not serve, right? Which is a line really often associated with Lucifer. And so I think fundamentally that there is in all of us the desire for freedom, that's great, but it's a very fine line because there is also sort of a rebellious streak in all of us, I think. And I think that is the spirit of the world or the spirit of the devil, right? And it's a fear. It's a fear of not being It's a fear loved. of losing my autonomy. It's a fear of all these kinds of things. And yes. so the key is to realize that the dictatorship of love has our best interests in mind, right? Yeah. And, the, and that makes it okay. But the, uh, the sin in the Garden of Eden can only be undone through humility and obedience, right? Because it is, it is the sin of pride. It is the sin of non servum. It is the sin of my way, not God's way. And so we have that. I think we're, we're kind of born with that tendency right. in a way. And it's on one side, we, it's right for us to legitimately oppose tyranny. But on the other side, we sometimes have such an impulse for self-will, self-freedom, that we forget that perhaps we also need to learn some obedience as well. And that's very good for us. To answer your question directly, <clears throat> I want to say this to anybody that listens to this story, that I want to say this in the kindest way possible. It is possible to have experiences or disagree with somebody in such a way that it sounds very negative. I do not want that to come across as somehow negative, talking badly about my dad, who's obviously a very large figure in my story. Um, so I want to say it's all kindness. But yes, there was definitely a dictatorship there. It is just a fact that I have to realize because it is a fact that informs my own story. And I have pondered this, or I should say been struck by it over the years. 
My brother, who's four years older than me, he went to college um, and got a, a Christian college, got a degree in uh, youth ministry, and then became an atheist. Wow. So we were both raised in the same family, the same environment. There was definitely, especially as I, first with him, but then as I got older, this um, conflict going on in us with my dad, with that, that sort of tyranny that we had there. Sure. Um, which was an intellectual tyranny, it was. right, as well. I don't, I don't mean just a, this is how you behave around the house kind of tyranny, but it was, it was everything. And it may seem that my brother and I went on radically opposite journeys, right? Because I leave this very unstructured, non-denominational, but yet fundamentalist uh, background to become, in the Christian setting, the polar opposite. (laughs) A Catholic with liturgy and sacraments and adhering to the infallibility of the Pope. I mean, this is as as far off as... Yeah, exactly. And then my brother, who who ends up rejecting religion altogether and becoming an atheist. But I think that there is a type of connection, though, because I, I don't want to psychoanalyze other people, but I think that I speaking for myself, certainly felt relief when I began to become convinced of the truth of the Catholic Church's claims, to realize there was an authority greater than me or my dad, and that confusion and disagreements over, you know, theological stuff can be laid to rest, and I can have a certainty of that. That is very powerful. Um, And I think that perhaps my brother felt something similar in saying, you know, because I think religious authority was probably associated with dad's authority. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So I think in a sense, both of us kind of end up rejecting dad's authority. Well, and that's what I was And that's the tricky of, bit. Yes. Where, how, you know, where does the psychology of childhood affect the way we view religion? And you mentioned, yeah. and I want to say this because I think this is so important. You mentioned the fact that there can be in our world an actual anger or antipathy towards God the Father. That is very critical. There's this beautiful story told by Scott Hahn. You may have heard it. Uh, Before he became Catholic, he was doing um, some kind of ministry. I think he was in seminary, fairly young guy. And he was in, I'm going to totally butcher this, but I want to say like a poor part of New York. And he was helping do some ministry for a while with kids that were basically like off the street. And very early on, the guy that had been there longer was telling him, um, one of the things, be careful when you're talking, when you're preaching or whatever, don't talk about God as father. Because almost all these kids don't have a dad or they hate their dad, right? And so they're going to have a really bad impression. I've I've been told that before. And, And Dr. Han said, I'm not sure I agree. Maybe they actually need to hear what a real father is like. And so he made the point of talking about God as father and trying to express that. And apparently it was very impacting to the kids. But I think that our experiences with our fathers when we're young, there is an association between that and God the Father. And so we project the experiences of our human fathers onto God the Father. Even if our human fathers were great, It's still limited. It's still not a great thing to project, but at least it can open us to accepting God, the Father. Yes. But if we had a negative experience with our human fathers, 
it can be a real struggle. It can be a real psychological block to accepting God the Father. Um, and so I guess two things I would say about that is, you know, trying to express and explain in some way the beauty of what God the Father actually means if we have not had a great experience. But then also for those of us who are parents to remember the weight that we bear psychologically on our shoulders as parents, in this case I'm thinking specifically of fathers, but it's true of both, in the fact that how we behave is giving our younger children, especially during certain years, there's a, a psychological fact that children see their parents as God, pretty much, right? Uh, I remember the that feeling. The incredible responsibility we have to try in some small limited way to show the true love of what God is and not to warp their impression of God, which is kind of scary. <laughs> As a parent myself, it's kind of terrifying yeah. reality. Well, to th yeah, you, to think your own children would look at you as God. Because we associate our first image and perception of God comes from our parents and whether our parents were there for us or not, yeah. you know, abusive or affirmative. Yeah. And it's that, I think, when it's ruptured that causes us to switch from the father-son relationship to the master-slave paradigm. And absolutely right. that is actually something that John Paul II even addresses in the last chapter of his book, Crossing the Threshold of Hope. That book was written as an interview. He answered a reporter's questions because he could never actually sit down to have this interview. Mm -hmm. So it's this profound, just open, honest answer to this uh, reporter. And this question at the end of how can we really have hope yeah. in this world? And it's this attitude that there's nothing solid or stable to hold on to because whatever you think you're holding on to will betray you yes will abuse you will yes. forget will leave you and abandon you yeah. and that's why i think we struggle with receiving the love from god the father because maybe we didn't receive that love the way we deserved to receive right. it from our earthly father or our earthly mother it's so true and in so many ways my dad was a good man but there were these issues, there were these things, and I will say to this day, I find it far easier to pray to Jesus than to God the Father. You know, and I'm aware, I'm aware of this, that I, I and I, I think that slowly over time, that's beginning to change, that I don't have quite the same viewpoint, but it is difficult not to see God the Father is the more wrathful, vengeful, strict one, and the Son is the one that saves us. But the reality is, God is one, and it is the Father who loved us that much to send the Son on our behalf. It is the precise same love the Father has that the Son has. Yes, and when you see the Son, you see the Father. Exactly. That's... Jesus says it over and over again. You know, Philip, have you been with me for so long and you still do not, you're still not right. getting and this? and he's not just speaking to Philip, he's yeah. speaking to all of us. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Yeah. And so when we see the incredible love of Christ, the divine love that gives itself to us in this overabundance, in this divine gratuitousness to the last drop of blood, we are seeing the heart of the Father. So that's... Um, but you know... Maybe that's a little bit of something that we could interpret that passage if you, you know, because Jesus says the way to the Father is through me, but we can't see the Father, right? Right. 
But by seeing the Son, we can begin to realize that the Father is not this harsh, tyrannical, you know, king in the sky kind of thing. Because the more we look at Jesus, the more we do begin to see the Father that we could never see before. Yes, the, the one who pours himself out for his beloved instead of emptying his beloved out for the sake of himself. Yes. It's, it's the master-slave relationship flipped on its head where the, the father, the apparent dictator, becomes the slave, the servant of all right. in a way that helps us see that he truly does want what's best and the dictatorship of love you said is not a dictatorship of at all it's mm -hmm. the very means by which we flourish we're happy right. and that to me is something that you i think must have been working through as you got away out of the house and growing up you know learning that it's almost like you had to you had cognitive dissonance because you were yeah. trying to hold these two realities of how your father was and how God the Father apparently is, and then to find redemption. How can you make sense of that? I think that there was cognitive dissonance there, a lot of it. I don't think I would have realized it as that consciously, but I did after a long time begin to be aware of the fact that there was a cognitive dissonance in myself between my theological beliefs, in which if you asked me about God, I would have said he's completely loving, kind, merciful, etc. And the fact that subconsciously I'm running in terror, right? And, and I, I, I really had to realize that I did have that viewpoint of God, which was an extremely unjust viewpoint of God. So I'm believing the right thing, so to speak. God is love, right? And just totally not living it at all. And it's, it's like a, a purely intellectual belief. But psychologically, it's just there's like this terror of God. Well, also emotionally and and uh, and even within the depth of your heart, like you could yeah. make an intellectual, mental assent mm -hmm. to that reality. Yeah. But to let it in to those places within your heart it's where you were most in the world. wounded. Yes. That's the hardest part because that's how can you let anyone journey. love you in a place where you weren't loved? That's a, that's an ongoing journey. It's it's um, yeah. I consider it to this day one of the biggest battles of my life is to trust that God is as good as I think He is. It's like it's one thing to believe that God is good. It's one thing to believe that He is love, to believe that He is merciful. But it's quite another to actually live your life in light of that, to let it inside, as you say, to let it heal the wounds. Um, and it causes, and I think we'll probably touch on this soon because, you know, I've given you a little bit of the, the family background, the early childhood background, but I began in my teens and around the same years that I began encountering the Catholic Church, I began to so also experience a lot. So what did you first encounter the church? Well, I'm being a little bit vague here intentionally sure. because it's hard to pinpoint that. Oh, we'll just well, see in a moment. Right. But it was also around these times that I began to experience some very disturbing psychological illness kind of stuff. Okay. So there, there is certainly a connection here between like the psychological and, and, the, and the faith journey. Well, before we get into the, the depth of that, because yeah. it's, it's very complex, let's get some basic uh, outlines of yeah. things. So you had childhood. Let's get the facts. Yeah, just <laughs> the straight facts. of So you had childhood up in Indiana for a short time in yeah. the log cabin, and then you moved. Moved, still in Indiana, um, home-churched, homeschooled, 
We didn't have a lot of friends. So super secluded. All the way through. All the way 18. through. Yeah. All right. Um, for quite a few years, didn't have like a ton of friends. We were pretty pretty reclusive, secluded as a family. Gotcha. Right? So where did you go at? I guess at eighteen. Where were you? Eighteen to twenty-two. Like a lot of guys go to college or yeah, trade school. Yeah, I, oh, I did. I did eventually. I went to uh, IUS. I never finished my degree, um, okay. but I did go to IUS, Indiana University Southeast New Albany, for a couple of years. Which was almost my first time stepping foot in the classroom was my first day in college, you know. So that's cool. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, to you're kind of asking like, when did this happen? Sure. Fifteen, sixteen, seventeen is a good good point to it. There is a journey that happened, and it has for many years been fairly clearly marked out in my mind. And I have to say that the first stage of that journey wasn't quite Catholic yet, uh, but actually began with C.S. Lewis. As oh. is the case of so many other people. The great guy. Yeah. One of the things that I, I have realized, though, looking back, because I would say that what happened in my teens was largely an intellectual journey, and I've always viewed it that way, or I shouldn't say always, but for many, many years, I, I felt that my journey into the Catholic Church was an intellectual one because I didn't really know Catholics. I knew, like, maybe two Catholics in my entire life. Um, up until the age of, like, 20, I think I stepped foot in the Catholic Church one time. So I didn't have any apparent influences in my life from that. So to me, I, I view this as a matter of reading and a, and a very much an intellectual journey. Eventually, I was able to look back and realize that there was another influence, one that predated Lewis, that helped to inform me emotionally and psychologically and inform my worldview. And it actually took me, I would say, into adulthood maybe quite a while into adulthood, to actually realize that the, the ground had been tilled before the seeds were planted. And that happens to be J.R.R. Tolkien and the Lord <laughs> of the Rings. You were I knew you knew it. it because you, you know my love <laughs> yeah, for Tolkien. that's right. But I, I, would never, Tolkien. I would never have seen the Lord of the Rings as, as you know, a theological treatise or an apologetics because they're not. Right, it's a story. And in fact, when I first read them, and for many years, I didn't know that Tolkien was Catholic. Most people, I think, don't. That's possible. They just think it's an epic TV show now or epic movie or epic book series. But almost nothing impacted me to the level those books did, especially in my childhood with the feelings I had. And, you know, it, it called me to something, something beautiful, something other, something that I wanted to experience, I hadn't experienced. It informed my imagination. And I think we don't give enough credit to the importance of how imagination is informed. We think of education, you know, informing with facts. But I think imagination is very, very important. And it's difficult. Well, because it fuels our creativity, our artistic flair, that deeper side. But it also fuels how we see the world in total. Yes. And I didn't realize that all these things in The Lord of the Rings were sacramental deeply sacramental books, that we've got these things that called to me images of Mary, images of a structured kingdom, right? Mm. You know, the city set on the hill, Minas Tirith. Oh, yeah. All of it's these like the things. Vatican, but also beyond it's, the Vatican. It's the Catholic it's Church. The, it's the, it's it's the, the kingdom. It's the New Jerusalem, right? It's the New it's Jerusalem the kingdom of coming heaven, down out of heaven. Right? And, of course, not all of this was probably even conscious on Tolkien's part, though he does say that the books were at first unconsciously and then consciously Christian and specifically Catholic. And that's pretty much a quote from him, right? He's very clear on that. 
He denies allegory somewhere, and so everybody says, oh, yeah. the books aren't allegorical, because the specific allegory he was responding to was the idea that one of the final chapters, The Scouring of the Shire, related to cleaning up England after World War II, and he's like, the books aren't an allegory. Like, stop, right? And so unfortunately, I think that quote has gotten into people's heads, and they don't realize he is very clear these are intentionally Catholic books. And so I didn't know, I didn't know that. I didn't realize that these things that were calling to me and drawing me and changing the very way I felt and thought about things, I didn't realize that they were Catholic. So now I have to look back and realize years before I first started the intellectual journey, the ground had been laid that I think prepared me to be far more open to the Catholic Church than my religious background would have ever allowed. I think that right there is the most important uh, discovery you could have made in your conversion because it gave you an ability to see where Christ physically was in the room when you were growing up as a child, when you were going through that, what you felt in some ways at times was a dictatorship, you know, yeah. uh, and this intense intellectual structure that was unstructured at the same time, you were being given this vision, this worldview, this adventure yeah. of Lord of the Rings that then helped you see your own life as part of a grand adventure, right? I'm going on an adventure like Bilbo, <laughs> right? I love that. Um, Nasty, uncomfortable things make yeah, you late for dinner. Of course, right. They definitely make you late for dinner. But it, like that story impacted my life too. It's I like powerful. The, I like the fact, John, that you said, you know, where Christ was in the room because... Christ is the incarnation. It's God becoming flesh. And that is the truest, fullest example of that, of course. Of course. But I think you could see art, good art, good literature, when it is revealing the truths of God as sort of like a mini incarnation. Yes. Right? I, I came across this awesome word um, a while back related to uh, the scriptures that uh, this author is talking about um, Lectio Divina, the, the traditional method of the monks use of praying the scriptures. Um, he uses the word inverbation. So he talks about the incarnation, the word becoming flesh. And he, he says that, you know, the scriptures are not of that level, right? It's not the same as God in flesh and in Jesus. But their level of inspiration is also something much more than just, God help these people speak true things and that's it, right? Right. So he used the inver, like verb, uh, like, like the Latin for word, right? Word, Inverbation. Right. right. So kind of like the word becoming incarnate in, in the written word. Mm. So maybe that's a way to think of that. And again, much lesser, of course. But there was something incarnational in the Lord of the Rings. And I think it really helped me, even though I didn't realize it. Um, and I didn't realize it for years. It took years to get to that point. And before you get yeah. into that, I think it's good that we pause for this segment because we covered your teen years, the beginning of conversion, your openness and recognition of, uh, of an intellectual journey, right? Reading C.S. Lewis and other books and then rediscovering this seedbed before Lewis in J.R. Tolkien that would lead you to the structure and safety of the Catholic Church. So I think from there we'll get more into, okay, now what did you do practically yeah. to find yourself a Catholic, right? So we'll we'll uh, jump into that, I think, in our uh, third segment. So thanks for staying with us with Spirit Inspire, and uh, we'll be back after this. 
Hey everyone, another sponsor for today's episode is the Cathedral of the Assumption in the heart of downtown Louisville, Kentucky. It is the spiritual center of parish and family life and is a historic treasure for the Catholic Church in America. Take a tour or consider visiting for Mass. Check them out at cathedraloftheassumption.org. All right, everybody, welcome back to Spirit Inspire. Again, we're here with Isaac Fox. He's telling his story with us, and I am so excited to have him. As always, we, we've you know gotten into a little bit of the, the depth of your childhood, growing up with your yep. father, and and uh, just the seemingly secluded you know growing up. But yet, on some level, while there was some seclusion, it may have been uh, the beginnings of an adventure that you didn't know about. Right, yeah. that you would only rediscover years later, right? And we last segment we got into a little bit of, you know, the teenage intellectual conversion. You were searching, longing, striving for something beyond maybe your current situation, of the structured lack of structure that you felt maybe in in your home growing up, and how that on some level uh, led to a split, and how you and your brother responded to yeah. that. Um, and so now I guess maybe before we get into the, the depth and, or meaning behind these experiences, which we all feel about uh, all the things that happen to us in our lives, right? Um, to make sense of the timeline here so we get a, a, a good picture of you, um, what happened uh, 17, 18, when you're finally you know, able to move out and, and kind of find your way until... 25 or 30, I guess, in that in that 10-year yeah. range. What happened well, in what order, I guess? Let's actually go back a couple of years before then because my sure. conversion began a little bit earlier than that. Sure. I mentioned Lewis earlier, and so I'll try to kind of just, you know, briefly explain what happened. So first thing I got to understand, I was a huge bookworm as a kid. And I kind of knew who C.S. Lewis was. And I think I've already mentioned there was this almost like anti-intellectualism when it came down to Christianity in my family. Right? Um. I remember myself or my brother at some point, um, and this is a, an important memory for me, realizing my mom had a copy of Mere Christianity. And it was either my, myself or my brother, I really don't remember which one now, asking, oh, is that a good book? And my mom's response being sort of mixed, like, yeah, it's a good book, but it's very intellectual. And there was this sort of, I just remember there being this kind of like negativity towards trying to use the intellect to prove the truths of, of Christianity, right? And I've already spoken to how so much of this uh, atmosphere is dominated by what somebody would believe that God had said to them or the leading of the Holy Spirit, right? So the intellectual side of Christianity was definitely squashed there. So I found a copy of C.S. Lewis's book, The, the Abolition of Man. Whoa. And this is an odd place to start, yeah. right? Most people start with Narnia or maybe, um, you know, the Mere Christianity, maybe even the Screwtape Letters. I start with The Abolition of Man. Don't really know much about this guy, except I knew he was kind of a big name and I was a bookworm. Found a used copy at our library book sale. Hmm. I was, I think, 15 at the time. Good and timing. I read it and I was just blown away because this was the first time I had seen truths related to religion, to God and so forth handled from an intellectual logical perspective. And I wish we had an hour to discuss this point, 
because again, something I didn't really realize then, but there was uh, there was a freedom, there was a, a joy uh, about this that I think now I would say, look, faith has to map onto reality. Otherwise, we have that dissonance again. Yes. And so if something is true, it's not true just because I believe it. It's not true just because I'm trying to grip my teeth and come with arguments to convince myself and others. But it's true because it is real, right? And I think I got a taste of that in Lewis. And I was hooked immediately. And this is what I would peg as the beginning of the intellectual journey. And this moves very quickly at this point. Before long, my entire family got into C.S. Lewis and mm. started reading him. And I read Mere Christianity and I read the screw tape letters and even my dad, right? Like uh, he loved it. He starts reading C.S. Lewis. And um, so as a family, my brother, all of us were really into this for a while. And so my dad somehow found out that there had been a somewhat earlier British author that apparently had some influence on, on Lewis, some guy named G.K. Chesterton. Right? <laughs> and so my dad's like, well, or, or maybe he'd read somewhere that they were in like a similar vein. I don't really remember, sure. but he's like, okay, like this Lewis guy, I'm going to check out Chesterton. So he got two of Chesterton's books from the library. One was called The Everlasting Man. The and other Chesterton was called- Chesterton was Catholic. Right. So but your dad read a Catholic author. Right. Did he know he was Catholic? Yeah. So wow. So this is, I don't know if he knew it when he first ordered the books. Oh, okay. But he becomes aware of it. So he gets Everlasting Man and Orthodoxy and reads them. He loved the writing. He loved some of the things that Chesterton had to say. Like, I remember my, you know, we might be around the dinner table and my dad would be like, listen to this. And he'd like read us a paragraph of it. And Chesterton, of course, has these memorable lines. So it makes great reading. Yeah. And it, at some point, it was known or found out that Chesterton had been an Anglican, like Lewis, but had converted and become Catholic. And I still remember my dad's comment was, because he, he really loved Chesterton. Like, he really was digging this. And in making the comment that he just couldn't understand, though, how somebody as intelligent as Chesterton could have become a Catholic. Right? <laughs> and so, so this was the next phase in the family. I'm reading Chesterton now. And something changed for me here. And I'm not here to sing the praises of Chesterton. I'm quite fond of the guy. I have gone through mixed feelings over the years about Chesterton. Sometimes I feel he's just a little too over the top with things, and I prefer a different approach. Um, and then I go back to like loving him again, right? So, you know, everybody's got their opinions on Chesterton. Yep. But at this phase of my life, I was overwhelmed with what I was reading. And I noticed something. He was very smart. He uses a lot of logic. He's very brilliant. So that could be a bit like Lewis. But there was a profound difference. This could just be youthful misunderstanding on my part. Lewis is more cautious and scholarly in his approach. Chesterton throws caution to the winds. He just, it's like you can imagine him with a pen just writing like mad. Like, you know, just these thoughts and feelings. But what I discovered was something that is very profound on a psychological level. Both brilliant. Lewis is more cautious. And I'm aware of these things in his life, like his view on the Eucharist, where he would never go to one side or the other. He lived in Anglican circles. He, was, he had friends who were Anglo-Catholics, like higher church Anglicans. He had friends who were Catholics, like Tolkien. He had lower church friends. And in the Anglican church, there is this real variation between do we accept a literal understanding of the Eucharist or do we accept a purely symbolic or a more symbolic aspect of it. 
And Lewis seems to kind of been like, didn't want to really say, didn't really want to go one place or the other. So there's that kind of tentativeness, that caution there. Yeah. You never find that kind of thing in Chesterton. Chesterton, if anything, is never cautious. But he has this certainty. And it's a very strong certainty. Like, he makes no bones about it. And he, he will say it humorously. He's like, you know, I respect, he talks about George Bernard Shaw. He says, I absolutely respect Bernard Shaw. They were friends, but they disagreed constantly. Yeah. He says, the only difference between Shaw and myself is that he's wrong and I'm right. Like, he actually <laughs> says this in one of his books. And it's a funny little, little jab at, at, at Shaw, but... There is this conviction that Chesterton has that was unlike anything I'd ever encountered. It was more so than what, at least what I was picking up in Lewis. I was not unused to conviction. My dad was about as convinced of a person as I've ever come across in my life. Um, yeah. Strongly so. Emphatically, dogmatically convinced and certain of everything he said. But Chesterton felt different. And the only way that I can explain this is by saying that Chesterton felt like somebody who was not out there stridently trying to prove himself, who was not trying to talk over, but rather somebody who had found the truth, who was standing with his feet on the rock and says, I am free, I am at peace, I can relax, and by the way, this is the truth. Yeah. I had never encountered that kind of certainty in my life. It spoke to me as something that was freeing and beautiful rather than intense and dogmatic. And it left a, a taste, a hunger in me. Um, and immediately I wanted more. And I just started digging in at this point. Um, because what you're saying, Isaac, is that the church is not out to get you. It's not a tribunal by which no. you submit your papers to a group of people at the Vatican and then they tell you what you're going to do for your life. It's not communism. It's not socialism. It's Catholic. Yeah. It's not even capitalism. It's, it's this beautiful respect and reverence to the dignity of the human person with all their flaws and mistakes, failures and sins, their feelings of shame and guilt, the things that cripple us, our depression, anxiety, and addictions, all of that the church knows is part of the story of the human person. Right. And yet by lovingly gazing upon them as Christ does for each of us, he, he point, pushes through all of this, the labels and fears and perceptions of what the church is or what the church has been in the eyes of others because right. of the poor leadership of cardinals, bishops, and ministers, right? And, and It's helps, still on the rock of truth. And it's still the truth. Truth. Yeah. You know, I heard my mom told me she, she listens to lots of podcasts and she, you know, fell in love with this one guy. And he was saying, you know, the, the Catholic Church is like a ship on the ocean and it's mm -hmm. got all kinds of holes busted into it. Right. And somehow it's still floating and still somehow is the best ship on the ocean. It's because Jesus is in the bark of Peter. Exactly. Yeah. Jesus is the one who looks at each one of us and says, you are loved. You are lovable. You are worth loving. And I'm here for you. I think that certainty of truth is similar to the certainty of love, right? Because somebody may say, oh, my mom loves me. My dad loves me. My wife loves me. My husband does or whatever, when they're maybe not like in a great relationship. And it maybe sounds a little bit forced. 
And then when somebody actually is, they're saying the same thing, but there's this sort of like contentment, there's a certainty about it that it's, it's hard to put your finger on what it means. Yes. But this was, a, this was kind of like, everybody I knew growing up was very convinced of their truth, right? It was right. not about, it wasn't that I grew up around people who were wishy-washy and vague and uncertain, not at all, quite the contrary. Um, and so if that had been the case, then Chesterton might have come as a surprise for being, oh, he's the first like kind of convicted person I've ever met. Right. Or convinced would be the better word to use there. No, it was the rejoicing, the genuine freedom, the sort of peace that was found in this certainty, the fact that he was relaxing in it is like, yes, I'm not trying to support myself. I've landed on the rock. I've actually found it. This was brand new to me. This is something I never encountered. So it sounded so, more like an invitation or a proposal than yeah. maybe a, this is it. Like it, it wasn't it was like trying this to hint force of, you or convince you. Maybe was, he actually has found the truth. Yes. Maybe he's not just convinced of it because anybody can be convinced of anything. Yes. But it was like, maybe What's he he's got actually got it. Yeah. And so I did not, not yet at this point in my life was anything really consciously heading towards Catholicism for me. But what I will say was I began to read and read and read. And my reading began to become almost strictly Catholic authors. And again, this is no offense to anybody, but I remember at some point in my life realizing that um, this is what I wanted to read, this kind of stuff, because there was like meat to it that I could sink my teeth into. And I just couldn't find myself interested so much in like, you know, going down to the local Christian bookstore and picking up a devotional. It was like, I, I read Fulton Sheen for the first time around, you know, when I was like 16-ish, 17, somewhere around there. And yet still not heading toward Catholicism in your mind. Not that I knew. I didn't wow. know I was. And I still love Lewis, right? So there's like high church Anglicans and all this. And um, theologically, I didn't have a clue. But certain things were beginning to happen to me. The fact that, and I read Dorothy Sayers' Creed or Chaos at this time, I began to realize that maybe some structure and creeds and stuff weren't all bad. Um, and I began to get... I don't know, just tastes of little things subtly. But if you want to talk about the big theological points of the Catholic Church, like Eucharist, Papacy, Mary, all that, no, 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 no. I wasn't there yet oh, at all. Oh, sure. Not course. even a clue. Right. right. But I had gone into a journey, which for a young fundamentalist was a very dangerous journey indeed. And uh, when I was about 16, I was working at our local library as a clerk. It was a job I got for a while, part-time job. Not a busy job small town, local library, and your main job is to check out books as people come up to the counter. That's not the busiest job in the world. Right. So I'm sitting behind the desk, <laughs> and there was a computer, and it had the internet. And I start finding more information, like way more information. Uh, eventually That's wound up on all Catholic apologetic yeah. sites. And I began finding things. So I, at this point... There was definitely an attraction towards Catholicism um, in some way. The things that other people might not have liked, I, have, I actually, I think even earlier in my life, found attractive. Um, I, I remember at least some point in my teens thinking even the idea of a monastery. I, I kind of got what was cool about that in some way, right? Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't hating on that kind of idea. And well, on some level, you had a, a personal monastery as you grew up, right? <laughs> not, not quite what you had in mind, maybe. <laughs> but I was pretty convinced that, it, in, and I didn't know history at all, I was pretty convinced in the Middle Ages that 
whatever Christianity was that had become the Catholic Church and gone way off the rails. <clears throat> and, you know, and then I, I began to formulate my own kind of historical ideas. I be, as a little, the little bits began to chip away, and I began to realize that, <clears throat> you know, as I began to learn more, well, okay, the Catholic Church apparently has been around for a really long time. Uh, maybe it just kind of went south in the Middle Ages, right, and did all this medieval stuff. And eventually at some point, and this kind of happens organically, I begin to actually look at the doctrines, right? And I begin to understand first that they are not opposed to the, church, to the, to the Bible. And you have to keep in mind, John, the Bible was everything for me theologically at this point in time. And by the way, yeah, I didn't think about that. Becoming Catholic doesn't mean I rejected the Bible. I, if anything, I have more appreciation. No, you've embraced it even more. I have far more appreciation for its inspiration, its depth, and its beauty. The Bible has begun to become unlocked for me because I can now see it through the church's eyes. You see it in its proper context. Yeah. When you don't have context, it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. But because all I had to be certain of was the Bible, but I wasn't certain how to interpret it because yeah. that's kind of the drawback there. I had to make sure that there was, that no Catholic doctrine, right, and I'm skipping it a little bit where I was actually closer to conversion, but it was terrifyingly critical for me that there could not be one thing in the Catholic Church disagreed with the Bible, because if it did, then it was an abomination. That was fundamentally my viewpoint. It's either right or it's from hell. Like, there's no in-between. Yeah. And I think, I think, too, if I were to have come from maybe... Uh, Orthodox, Anglican, or Lutheran backgrounds, which have a lot more in common with liturgy and history with the Catholic Church, that might have been not quite as big of a deal. But for me, coming from such a fundamentalist background, there was no in-between. If I had not become Catholic, I would have gone back to non-denominational. I wouldn't have gone for a secondary form, not then. I wouldn't have tried to become Anglican or something, yeah. right? It was all or nothing. So bit by bit, and we were completely non-sacramental belief in my family. Baptism wasn't a sacrament even, and most Protestants do accept baptism as a sacrament. So like, I remember that. Uh, you know, I'm online reading stuff at the library, and I'm kind of like, wow, you didn't the, they're, they're, showing, they're showing verses from the Bible over and over again. I'm like, wow, okay, I'm kind of starting to think this might be true. And so one by one, the Catholic doctrines start falling into place for me. At first... A lot of it was just to realize they were not opposed to the Bible. You know, you could see how somebody in good faith could actually believe this. Uh, several of them were very attractive to me, however, and a few of them I kind of started believing. Hmm. I still was very clueless. I remember the point in time where I was really getting convinced of the real presence. At and what age was this? This is 16, 17. You're still 16, 17 yeah. age. This happens really fast. <laughs> I, was, I, I went in head over heels. I also started learning about church history. Uh, I was homeschooled. And at this point, you were moving toward Catholicism? Y yes. This happens within the space of like a year, to be so, honest with you, like so a year or two. So from your, I'm not moving toward Catholicism to I am moving, happened between 15 and 18. Uh, less than that. This mainly 15. happens 16 to 17, 16 right? Like 15, 15 is Lewis. And I might, you know, it's been a long time now. I might get some of my precise That's dates okay. wrong. That's okay. That's okay. 15 is like Lewis, yeah. right? But 16 is, 16 to 17 is the tipping That's point. That's your critical. Where I'm into mm. Chesterton, where I'm into, you know, all of this stuff. 
And bit by bit, it goes from, I'm loving this, I want more of this, I'm reading these authors, my thinking's beginning to shift, but I still assume the Catholic Church is like totally off, to more and more of it is looking right and attractive. And suddenly at one point, without me even noticing, I was actually starting to try to prove the Catholic doctrines. Like I was starting to want them to be true. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> it went from, it went from, I love what these Catholic authors say to, okay, maybe their doctrines aren't crazy. I could see that somebody yes. could believe them to, oh, I think maybe I'm beginning to believe some to, I want this to be true. I want it to right? be true because it's too good. It's, it, and this, everybody this happens it's quickly. Good to be true. Yeah, that's this happens so in the course of, I'd say roughly mm. a year. And so, I still remember when I began to believe in the real presence in some way, but I was still not catechized, still very vague on all this. I did not understand anything about consecration and apostolic succession. So I thought this came to be because of faith. And I remembered wondering, because this seems so beautiful to me, the real presence of Jesus. And we would celebrate communion in our home, and we actually used wine. Odd. But my, my dad's like, they use wine in the Bible, therefore we need to use wine. And they had a... Uh, they had, uh, <laughs> You uh, even Jew celebrated communion. They had Jewish world. matzah crackers, right? The <laughs> unleavened bread. And so I remember thinking, maybe if my parents were gone someday, like, could I sneak some of the wine and bread and go out someplace? And if I believed and prayed fervently, maybe it like really become the Eucharist for me. I didn't do it, right? But I do remember <laughs> I that. I love that you had I remember that thought. That thought. Though, that's so beautiful. <laughs> so something really wild happens at this point. So at the age of 16, I was in a very bad accident. A small country town, and I was uh, working a summer job as a uh, delivering newspapers. It was a once a week walking route for this little newspaper. So a paper boy. And it was a long route. I want to say it was about eight miles and it was always on Tuesday. So it was a good workout. And I stopped to tie my shoes in a parking lot. And next thing I knew, I was underneath of an eight ton septic truck. And this was in March of the year that I, I would turn 16. Um, that had a huge impact on my life, to say the least, physically, but then later on psychologically. Right? There was a lot, a lot that came from that. Um, it was, I firmly believe to this day, angels and the grace of God that I, that I lived. Um, I was fairly badly injured, but nothing life-threatening. But you but if I had been, should have died. If I had stopped detail. one foot sooner than I did, I would have been gone in an instant, like just totally crushed to death. So that was a very unpleasant experience, but also, a <laughs> yeah. but also a profound one, though. And as I was recovering from this was when I began, you know, um, was when I got the job at the library, right? So this all, all this, this is my 16 to 17 year, right? <clears throat> and at the age of 17 was when the panic attacks started. And depression started, and you think the psychological some of this stuff came from PTSD. Um, so I, I have been told that I have PTSD, and I think that some of it does stem from that, though it's not the only source. And there was a combination of factors here. One was that, and the other had to do with my Catholic faith journey. And we'll kind of dig into that in a moment. Sure. But the last little bit of this, and, and I've been talking too much, that I would say is no, no. This is this is part of the story. You have to be able to get into the details of what's going on here. A couple yeah. of details that I would like to say is I finally, as I grew my understanding of the church and church history was incredibly important to me, John. I began to find the Catholic church was older than I thought. At first I thought it was medieval. And then I thought like many people did, maybe it was like around the time of Constantine and the Council of Nicaea when the, you know, the, the Roman empire makes it the official religion. And, you know, remember 
back at the beginning of our conversation, I was raised that what the Bible taught was a group of people would meet in somebody's home and study the Bible and sing songs, right? That was the primitive <laughs> Christian church. Right. And then I, I find, oh, oh, it's, it's pre-Nicene. And then I discover the earliest of the church fathers. My dad had this big religious library. He had a book called The Church Fathers. Uh, Gordon Lightfoot's Church Fathers, which has St. Irenaeus, wow. St. Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr. Um, the Martyrdom of Polycarp, I believe, was in it, and the First Epistle of Clement. And most of these are before the year 200, well before the Council of Nicaea. And that was the huge tipping point to me and was... So, and this all, so critical. You started to realize this after that car ex or that accident. Yeah, this 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 was after that. And, and the other thing that I read, the little detail I give is that I read G.K. Chesterton's The Catholic Church and Conversion around this time. I believe it was around this time that I also first uh, around 17-ish, 17 to 18, that I actually tried to plow my way through Cardinal Newman's development of doctrine. It was too heavy for me at the time because I was reading the Newman's Awesome and what a powerful book this was, sure. and I tried to dig into it. I might have begun on an intellectual journey, but I was not raised with this kind of stuff, and that book was it's like intense. was just too much for me. But in Chesterton's The Catholic Church and Conversion, he makes a very perceptive comment. It's been years since I've read this, so I'm, I'm not going to get this quite right. But he speaks of how as one begins the journey and goes further, closer and closer to the Catholic Church, you reach this excitement, this thrill, this joy of discovery. But when you get right up to the point of having to actually make the decision to cross the Tiber, fear sets in. And this was precisely what happened to me. And this, and I'll kind of sum this up here. Um, I realized at some point that this was getting serious. And the fear is not a bad fear only. I mean, I think it, it wasn't a good fear, but you think of anything, it doesn't mean that what you're doing is bad. Think of anything in life. You fall in love with a girl. It's exciting. But then you get to your wedding day. And it, did I, I, it's I, the jitters. It's the, you get the nerves, oh, right? This goodness. is for life. How, you know, you're, 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 you're double checking everything. It's a everything. lifetime commitment, right? So for this period of time now, I'm getting closer and closer. And I still remember the book. It was Carl Keating's The Catholic Church, or Catholicism and Fundamentalism. And it answered all the rest of the questions I had. I got it from my library. I went home with it. I stayed up the entire night and read it front to back. I couldn't stop. I couldn't put it down. Every accusation I'd heard against the Catholic Church, every doctrine, everything, it was like the scales falling off my eyes. I finished it sometime, I guess, in the wee small hours. And the next morning I was like, in my heart, I'm Catholic. <laughs> then I realized, oh, I have to do it, though. It's not just enough to believe it. And as I began to think about that, the fear set in. And so I told my parents one day, I didn't say what it was about, but I said, I need to take a day. So my, my parents believed in that prayer and fasting were good things. I said, I need to take a day to myself. I'm going to lock myself in my room. I need to pray and fast about something. And they said, okay. And I went into that room. And as I've told you, John, I was double and triple checking everything against the Bible because if one bit of what I was learning about the Catholic Church was wrong, if it didn't square up to the Bible, then I had to figure this was like the most evil form of Christianity on the world, right? Remember, I was not raised as a Protestant. I was raised as a fundamentalist as in, a, in an anti-Catholic environment. You know, I heard the lines, the Catholic Church is the whore of Babylon, you know, this kind of stuff. Right. 
um, this was a very, very big negativity towards the Catholic Church. And so I locked myself in my room, and I'm looking at my Bible, and I, I got my books, and I'm restudying them. There was, I don't know, it's like before you take that big step, it's like the bottom falls out. There's that knot in the pit of your stomach. There's the jitters. There's the fear. The, is, am I, I've been loving this. I've been eating it up. But now that it comes down to the moment of making a decision, I have to be 100% convinced. Like, am I that convinced? Have I made a mistake? Am I doing the worst thing possible? Or am I doing the best thing possible? You know, like, it, you're wrestling. You're like and it was Jacob Saint, did with the angel. And it was St. Ignatius of Antioch that tipped it for me. I picked up again my dad's copy of the Church Fathers, and I'm reading St. Ignatius. Again, for anybody listening, this is not Ignatius of Loyola. This is Ignatius of Antioch. He was the personal friend, disciple, mentored by St. John the Apostle, the guy that wrote the fourth gospel in Revelation. The guy who right? was standing at the foot of the cross. Yeah. <laughs> this is his disciple. This is like his spiritual son. And I'm reading Ignatius's letters. I'm glancing through them again that he writes as he's on the way to Rome to be martyred. Think of the date here, John. He dies at the latest 115, okay, possibly earlier than that, 100 to 115. Um, John dies again around the same time. This is within a few years striking distance of the death of the last apostle. Right. And Ignatius says, concerning certain people, he says, they hold a heretical opinion, for they do not confess that the Eucharist is actually the body and blood of our Lord. And they also don't pray, and etc. He's talking about the Gnostics. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're saying that at the time of the death of the last apostle, not like we fast forward to the Middle Ages and the church has gone off the rails. Right. But the time of the death of the last apostle, the entire church, with the exception of a handful of heretical Gnostics, Believe. believes in the real presence. And then, and then over in this other one, he says as he approaches martyrdom, I now desire nothing less than, how does, I'm not going to get this quote right, but something, or something along the lines of, I now want nothing but the the body of Christ, which is true food, and his blood, which is, uh, what does he say, the drink of everlasting life or something. And he refers to it as the medicine of immortality. And it's like, I'm done. I shut the book because it, it didn't just tip it in the sense of a little more evidence. It was that clarity that went beyond any of the arguments, any of the scriptural exegesis, any of the other quotes from the church fathers. It said to me, no question, this saint, this martyr, learned this from John. The Eucharist is a real presence. The Catholic Church has had it from the beginning. The Catholic Church is the church that Christ established. It is the church that his apostles handed on. And this is where I've got to go. That, Isaac, that is the core of what it means to be Catholic, to, to truly... You're in touch with 2,000 years. Yes, you have tradition, you have scripture, you have saints, you have sacraments, you have structure, you have charisma, you have the Holy Spirit and the, the flexibility of that, but you also have the, the confidence and stability of the rock yeah. that doesn't change with the ebb and flow of culture and hashtags and headlines. You have something that... Every person on earth is longing for. This is what Chesterton had. This was the rock that he could stand upon. This was the certainty. This is what, this is what brought me freedom and relief is, and again, I'm not saying anything 
you know, God love and I love my relatives and friends at that time. But this was not sitting around in somebody's living room for two hours thinking about, well, maybe we think this about this passage, or maybe I have a different opinion and you never really get to the conclusion. It's like God spoke upon this church, I, this rock I found my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it, St. Paul. The church is the pillar and ground of tr truth. He says this to Timothy. No, I don't need to spend the rest of my life reinventing the wheel. I don't need to ditch 2,000 years of the church's teaching, tradition, history, protected and inspired by the Spirit, get my Bible myself and see, can I figure out if baptism actually saves me or not? Can I figure out if ordination is... Why spend is that a, much time on right? it? <laughs> it's already been done. Yes, you have so much more that you can discern about your life, your purpose, yeah. and the impact that you can make. And I think of the... the I'm not treading water. No, it's like we're, right. we, It's like we had a direction. We're going somewhere now. Yes, and you have that ability to see it. And that's a gift, a grace from God that not many people in this world have. I mean, not many people, Isaac, I have to comment on this. Not many people have an intellectual conversion where they stumble upon the yeah. right books and then devour it all and become Catholic in isolation. It's it, 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 it was an isolation. And it was, right? But yet, at the same time, it wasn't. Because what you do in many ways, which is unlike me, Brian, or Eric, perhaps, is you open up a vista, a horizon of sight that most of us forget about or don't necessarily have, may have never been exposed to, which we call the communion of saints. And so what you're talking about is the great conversation, not a boring classroom, yeah. not a common household. We're never in isolation in the Catholic Church. Yes, a real, living, breathing, beautiful home. And we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Can I just share this? And I know that probably you know, you want to wrap up this segment, yeah, but sure. I want to share this because I want to fast forward a number of years, just tell you a little story. I was going through a difficult spot in my life because one of the things you're going to find out is I had that conversion, but it took me a long time to enter the church, way longer than it should have. So we're going to fast forward some years. Sure. And I remember, I think I was laying in bed one night and I was going through a very difficult time. And even though I'd accepted Catholic teachings, I did not make a habit of praying to saints. It was... You know, prejudice, prejudices die hard. Practices and habits die hard. So I accepted it, but it was a very long time before I really said any prayers to saints or asked them to pray for me. And I was going through this tough spot in my life, and I remember at nighttime, and I'm laying down, and I started asking the saints to pray for me. And I kind of went through this litany in my head of any, any saint I could remember. You know, it's like St. Augustine, pray for me. St. Ignatius, pray for me. Yeah, St. Whoever I've just read about, pray for me. And um, I, this, this idea, this, this vista, if you will, kind of popped into my head. I remembered the passage that Jesus, in which Jesus says, he talks about the good shepherd who goes for the one lamb that's been lost. And then this is followed up with, and well, this, there's three stories here in this context, and I think it's Luke. There is the prodigal son, there's the good shepherd, and there's a woman that searches for the coin that was lost in her house. And if you notice, all three of these end with celebration. All three of these end with calling people together to celebrate. The coin which I lost is found. Come and party with me. The lamb that I lost is found. Come celebrate, right? This is how all of these end. And everybody thinks they're crazy. <laughs> and Jesus says, 
So I tell you, there's more rejoicing in heaven over the conversion of one sinner than over like the 99 that never left. And so this verse pops into my head while I am saying, you know, Saint so-and-so pray for me. And it was like I got this momentary perspective mm. of seeing it from heaven's side. And I know in that verse, Jesus is talking about the angels. Well, at this point, we've got saints in heaven too, right? The Christian era has begun and saints are in heaven. Yeah. And it, it was not anymore this dim, vague, you know, saint so-and-so, I know you're in heaven, please say a prayer for me. It was like a picture in my mind of them looking down, cheering me on, like saying, we want you to come home, right? We're cheering for you. We're, we're, we're excited. We want you to make it. And that sudden realization, again, like, like the other passage I just mentioned, we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. It is the communion of saints. We are never isolated. We are never strangers. This is not even our home. Our home is there. And there is a great company of people there, of men and women and, and, and boys and girls of all ages and all walks of life that are looking down on us with great hope, with great love. They are brothers and sisters no matter how isolated we may be in this life, and they are cheering us on. Yes. And that was the first moment I think that I ever really kind of understood that, that I got that perspective of how many friends and family members we've got that are trying to help us get home as well. What you just said, you know, touches on the... the... And I didn't have that as a Protestant. No, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. You're, you're speaking about the very depth of our faith, uh, the most mystical insights, the things that many of us as Catholics... The body of Christ. Yeah, the body of Christ. Growing up Catholic didn't learn, didn't receive, didn't experience on any practical level. I mean, we had a Catholic identity, but we didn't grasp the depth of our purpose or necessarily the lifestyle that went along with it that would introduce us to these deep realities. And so for our audience to to get a glimpse of that is is I think powerful in your story because it's it's unique, it's vibrant, it's beautiful. Um, But for some it might seem like we all feel like it can be shocking, intense, intimidating, right? I feel like that myself with my own conversion. Like, I don't want to terrify people. Like, we're human. We're normal. We have fun. We enjoy things. Um, And we've gotten into trouble. We've made mistakes. We've had a lot of pain. And so I think as we, you know, wrap this segment up and pause, I think maybe we'll move uh, a little bit into some of that direction because with conversion comes suffering and transformation and... Uh, a lot of purgation, right? You have to yeah. be purged of a lot of of those habits and and things within your lifestyle that maybe you still picked going up along. Yeah, <laughs> and it's still going on for me yeah. as well, and I understand. So, um, with that, we'll uh, we'll take a short break, and we'll be right back. Uh, on Spirit Inspire here shortly. Hey everyone, here at Spirit Inspire, we want to serve our community by highlighting God's work in our parishes, schools, and apostolates. We hope to bring renewal and unity between all those in the body of Christ. If you would like a shout out in the next episode of Spirit Inspire, go to spiritinspire.com or email us at spiritinspire at gmail.com. Thanks and God bless.
All right, everybody, welcome back to our last segment of today with Isaac Fox. He's been sharing his story uh, about the, the deep intellectual uh, dive that he had in his teenage years and that led him into adulthood that brought him to profound conversion into the Catholic Church despite an intense upbringing and childhood where he felt a little bit of isolation. And I think that's, uh, that that is kind of the the basic themes of what you went through on some level, but that's as much as we've discussed intellectually, spiritually, psychologically, that only brushes the surface yeah. of perhaps the, the lifestyle and the uh, habitual transformation you had to undergo to, under, uh, to not just understand and embrace Catholicism, but to actually live it out so yeah. you could find the happiness that you were looking for. Right. Um, so uh, this will be a shorter segment because I really think to get into the depth of what we're just creaking into with this door is another we'll, episode. We'll need another episode. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. As we all know, it always goes to that Because the story takes some weird twists and turns about here so anyway. Right. So. And that's a good thing. Right. It's, yeah. it's always part of that because conversion, we hit moments of critical junctures. Right? Yes, yes. Conversion definitely. is, are you going to choose to go this way or that? Are you going to run away from it for the rest of your life? Right. Sure. There's some level of that. But I've heard like our, our will is like an infinite amount of branches, right? We have total freedom. But God, being all-knowing, can grow a branch, no matter what path yeah. we choose, to head back toward Him. So you could have rejected it at this moment and whatnot. But the, the fear is with these critical, critical junctures is you don't want to say no to God and then get into the habit of saying no to God. And we all yes, do it, yes. right? So, and when you realize that, it's terrifying too, because then you start wondering, can I ever break the habit? Right, can I ever get out of it? And then you can get overly scrupulous and a little yeah. obsessive, which I've fallen into at times. And um, we all do at different moments, especially when we have fresh conversion. We want to be perfect as yeah. the Heavenly Father is perfect, right? But what does that really mean? And how do you actually live that out in a way that's healthy, yeah. holy, human, and normal, right? I think that's very important. So maybe briefly speak to that yeah. uh, as far as how your lifestyle had to go through transformation. You can get as details as you want, recognizing that we'll just have another episode to break that. Yeah, and I think I think some of the details, you know, we can we can go into further in a second episode. Sure. So I'll try to be sort of bird's eye view kind of yeah thing. yeah. Um, you, you're mentioning though the the many possibilities that there are, and that God can can bring them back. You know, draw fresh lines when we've gone off off the path. Uh, that's very powerful to me, and it strikes me very deeply because I, I can only be in awe, honestly, of the mercy of God. That as many times as I just completely turn my back on things, that He kept finding new paths. You know, it's, it's amazing how, how he's able to do that. I never recommend trying to put that to the test. Of course not. Um, right, right. But That's not what you want. <laughs> so here's a little bird's eye view. Uh, we finished my story with me becoming convinced to become Catholic. The next day, I told my parents. 
So I, How'd that go? I was extremely naive. <laughs> I figured with everything I learned, the only reason people weren't Catholics was because they didn't know this stuff. And if you just shared it with them, they'd convert instantly, right? <laughs> this is, uh, the, this so is the very, good. very young me, right? I love how you said that. That's so good. It didn't go so well. No. <laughs> we had an argument that lasted the entire day. Oh, boy. And in part of that was, I remember my mom telling me that I had been deceived by Satan, right? And so the end of this argument was, I wasn't as well studied as I might have thought. My dad had some arguments that shook my, uh, my confidence a bit. Goodness And so gracious. I came away from it all thinking, ooh, maybe I wasn't right. Maybe I was about to make a big mistake. Yeah. Um, but also with the, I think a bit of, I don't want to go through that again either. So I stepped away for a while, but you know, it had its draw, it had its pull. And it wasn't too long before I was back online at the library finding these apologetic sites and getting new answers to the new questions. And eventually I became more reconvinced than ever. And I felt I, I've got to do this. Of course, now I had a little bit clearer idea of what I was up against. And I had a very innate, uh, well, cowardice. Right? I didn't, didn't want to be uh, in an awkward, uncomfortable position with my family. Yeah. I did not feel that I could wait till I moved out. Um, I felt if I know the truth, I need to go for the truth. And so, uh, again, I'm just I'm, I'm slightly amused in some points how incredibly uh, ignorant I, I was at the time. Like I learned a lot about the faith, but there was still so much I didn't know. So one day, when my parents were gone from the house, I pulled out a phone book and I looked up and found there was a local Catholic church in my little town called St. Patrick's, and I called it. I pretty sure I was thinking that like the priest would answer the phone. And, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I thought that anybody sure. hearing that, you know, a Protestant went into the church was going to, you know, jump up and down for joy. Instead, it was like a maintenance guy that answered the phone. Oh, and I pour out my story. Hi, I'm a Protestant and I found <laughs> the truth, the Catholic church. And I want to, you know, like, so I'm, I'm all excited. And I like to talk to a priest. And he's like, um, well, the Deacon actually deals with that here. Uh, okay, put me in touch with the deacon. So he gives me the deacon's name, Willie Harlan, friend of my dad's. No, I, you know, I knew Willie as a kid, vaguely. Nice guy. I had no idea he was Catholic. So I get his number. I call him. He doesn't answer the phone. I leave a message explaining, like, this is Herman Fox's son. I want to become Catholic, so on and so forth. No, he doesn't call back. Some days later, I'm sitting in my room, phone rings. My dad picks up the phone in his little office, and I hear him say, hi, Willie. And my heart went straight down to the bottom of my shoes. There wasn't going to be anything secretive about this. Willie was going to tell my dad, uh, so I got a message from your son. He's trying to become Catholic, right? And then I, we're going to have this out, right? I was almost sweating. My goodness. Little chit chat goes on, and finally my dad's like, "All right, thanks for calling. Bye." So I casually, as I could, stroll over to where my dad was. I'm like, uh, "Who was that?" He's like, "Willie Harlan said he had a missed call from me, but I never called him. I don't know." And goes back to work. <coughs> to wow. this day, I don't know if Willie didn't get the message, or if he didn't know if my dad would answer and was trying to protect me. I have no idea what actually happened there. But what did happen to me was. In my, my mind just went into full refusal. It was like, you know, fight or flight, and I chose flight. So I can't do this again. I can't, I can't take that risk again. 
and I just flat out turned my back on the Catholic Church. I attempted intellectually to deny everything I had learned. I couldn't face the reality of doing it. And oh my goodness. <coughs> excuse me. When I say it's the bird's eye view, hopefully in a second episode, we will be able to see how, by the incredible mercy of God, I did end up coming back. But what happened to me then was I was trying to protect myself in a very, it is that animal fight or flight instinct. And I, I was very much wrong to deny the truth. So I'm not trying to excuse myself. I will say, I don't think I fully realized how much damage I was going to do to myself. Because to attempt to deny something that you become that convinced is true, to attempt to deny it to your own self, you begin to lead to internal dissonance, to cognitive dissonance. It has also, to lead to despair, depression, a lot of that too. I also could not fully accept the Protestant position again, nor the Catholic. I flat out confused myself. <coughs> Pardon me. I went into spiritual vertigo. I began to become convinced that I may have committed the sin against the Holy Spirit and that I might already be damned in this life and that there was no way I could repent or unknow the truth since, or know the truth again because I had denied it. Um, the panic attacks already started. I began, I'd had experiences where I thought in my own mind I was being attacked by the devil. Then this goes on with it and so flat out depression, blackness, fear descend. Um, and then like when I moved out, then the lifestyle happens. So, you know, where I was all inspired at 17 to go join the church. When I finally entered the church years later, I was, <coughs> pardon what, me. What year did you enter the church? How old were you? I think I was 22. So it was 23. So you was 23. six years. Yeah. So, and I want, I want you to know this because we're not. But I was a mess by the time I actually got into the church. Of course you are. We all are, right? That's just how it is. And. Whether you're a baby with dirty diapers or you're a, an adult man with dirty diapers of sin, right? Yeah. And there's truth to that. But Mother Mary comes to clean us up. St. Joseph is there to yeah. pick us up and get us back on that bike wherever it is where we fell off. And I want to comment on this because, you know, I've, I've just grown up and I, I see these connections. And Wait, I, you're grown up? Shut up. Okay. Um, <laughs> ha, ha, ha. Um, and I, I want to affirm this reality because you're saying 17, you're feeling called to enter the church, but then you <sighs> ran away. Yeah. Think of that because it was six years, mm -hmm. six years. So take each year as a day of creation. There was this chaos mm, cool. in your life yeah. all the way to your most critical time and you're searching as a teenager when you're ready to take ownership of whatever faith you have been given in some level to make it your own, your own relationship with Christ. And that initial moment of light being separated from the darkness is scary. Yes, it, it takes is. a while to adjust to that light. And so within that adjustment comes the other days of creation. So in this situation, maybe look at it as the years in your life yeah. that led you to this moment of being invited from the sixth day where we're created as men and women on the sixth day with the beasts, right? The other animals. But then we're invited by God to the seventh day to rest with him, to enter the Sabbath, yeah. the Lord's day. Because the ultimate day is the eighth day attitude where we'll yeah. see God face to face. New creation, the resurrection. And so your conversion happening over six years to me is literally like the creation story. 
And it might not feel that way. It may not have felt that way at all. And you yeah. may have never connected the dots until maybe we're talking about it right now. And maybe found, that's a great gift. You know, The, the, the story of um, the Good Samaritan comes to mind. It felt not so much like going up to Jerusalem, but going down to Jericho and getting beaten, stripped, and left for dead in a ditch. Yes. And somebody comes along with oil and wine and binds it up and takes me into... Uh, you know, takes takes us into the inn, which is the church, yes. and says, you'll be taken care of here. And remember, Jericho was the first place to fall yeah. at the beginning of the yeah. promised land. You <clears throat> enter the promised land through that journey. And obviously, those six years, you didn't come out unscarred. You don't Not enter the promised land without deep wound scars. The Israelites never fully occupied the promised land. And they had a lot of attachment problems still from Egypt mm -hmm. and the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And it's still a journey that they were on when Jesus entered and they killed him. Yeah. And now he's, we have this worldwide blessing that now we, as the Gentiles of the Catholics now, can be a part of. Yeah. And you're a part of that now. It's a great gift, Isaac. Um, I'm I'm blessed to know you. you I'm know? blessed to know you too, John. Truly, seriously, I mean, it's All a miracle that we're together. One day, I'm sure we'll tell the story of how the podcast came to be because that's pretty cool too. It will happen, yeah. and when it happens, everybody, we'll make a big deal about it. We'll tell everybody before the episode would air of how did this podcast start, and we'll really get into that story. But we like building the anticipation up to make it more of a, a surprise and and uh, kind of getting ourselves. Uh, established right because yeah. you don't want to build a house on sand right we want a solid foundation just like the church and i think that's what these conversations are we're getting to know you all uh hopefully you enjoy our time yeah. chatting as we feel uh, and we're excited that eric and brian are sick right we are very happy <laughs> uh we can't forget that so um and isaac i know there's so many details uh, yeah. that we can break we'll get, into more get to them more. next so, time do you yeah. have any closing thoughts and things that you wanted to share before we end today not in any detail just uh, as always, the fact that the mercy of God is overwhelming and transformative, and I shouldn't be here today. I, I mean, I really should not be here today. Um, so it's just, I think, important for all of us at our worst or at our best to open the door to that mercy and uh, let it transform us and lead us where he will. Praise God. Love you, sir. You as well, sir. And God bless you all. We're looking forward to uh, more episodes of Spirit Inspire. It's, uh, it's been an incredible journey so far. And uh, now that all four of us have been introduced to you all in some level, we'll continue on uh, this journey of uh, not just telling our stories in different ways uh, and at the right time according to God's plan, but also the stories of so many others that we've been privileged to interview so far and that we look forward to uh, in the future as well as other topics, you know, things that we will have uh, that God will put in front of us. So uh, we thank you all so much for watching. And remember to check us out, subscribe, uh, click the like button, force the algorithms to proclaim the gospel, as we always say uh, in the Catholic world. And uh, we look forward to seeing you all next time. God bless you.